Good morning, good evening, wherever you are. I'm Aaron, and he's Brian. Hey there, how are you? And welcome to episode five of the Cloudcast. We're coming to you live from our massive Cloudcast studios here in Raleigh, North Carolina. Coming up today, we have some trends in the news. Mr. ROI dude, Steve Kaplan. Steve is the vice president of virtualization at the award-winning national reseller INX. So, on to the news. Aaron, it's been a busy, busy week in the news this week for cloud computing. So let's just jump into a few of the things that are going on out there. Earlier in the week, or, or a couple of days ago, Netflix took an outage about, I don't know, somewhere between a five, six, eight-hour outage that had people up in arms somewhat because of the Netflix outage, but more so because all of a sudden everybody wanted to point to the fact that Netflix, who had publicly moved to AWS, uh, here was the public cloud, and the public cloud had gone down, and oh my God, you know, what does this mean for the public cloud? So what's your take on this? So the, I was actually one of the people directly impacted by this. I was trying to watch um, Archer, season one of Archer. I just started watching that recently. And by the way, frickin' hysterical. I love Archer. Are you okay? Um, Are you okay? Are you going to be able to like get reimbursed for your uh, for your psychiatry bills from Netflix for this? For Are you going to be so in, in therapy? They were very, very nice. You know, they, they, they gave us a nice gesture and the fact that I got an email the next day or, or two days later, something like that, and they were giving me a 3% refund on my monthly fee. So I, I pulled up the calculator and, uh, you know, 7.99 and, and take 3%. I got 24 cents. Wow. Not even a quarter. <laughs> so so I, I was sitting around thinking, like, all right, well, what could you actually do with 24 cents these days? I mean, we won't, won't get you a cup of coffee. won't get you anything else, right? And so if this was 1981-ish and if I still lived in Pennsylvania where the, they had a little candy store on the corner kind of deal and they had um, Swedish fish, those little red, red gummy fish. Yeah, they're good. And you, you just had an open box, and it was like a penny a piece. And, of course, all the kids, you know, they're all slimed together from all the other kids' hands and all that. But, hey, you know, they were good. And I could have gotten 24 Swedish fish with my Netflix refund. I mean, that's, that's pretty cool. So it's the, okay, so it's, the equivalent, <laughs> it's, so it's the equivalent of, like, an afternoon of bad stomach aches. That, that yes. was the equivalent you got. Excellent. <laughs> so, you know, here, here's the thing, right? It's... Everybody's up in arms and, and Twitter's up in arms and people are up in arms about this. And you almost wonder if your enterprise, if your corporation had to report publicly to tens, hundreds, dozens of millions of people every time you had an outage, the kind of PR hits that you would take. So, I mean, yes, Amazon, by being public and by, by claiming that you know they're vastly superior than everybody else in the enterprise is going to have to deal with this. But I don't think this is the first time that, or the last time that we'll see some public outage or some highly, you know, highly visible thing. We've seen it with Gmail. You and I talked about it on the InfoSmack podcast. We've seen it with Gmail. We've seen it with uh, Flickr. We've seen it with everything else. Sometimes computers and systems and networks go down but uh and yeah if it, but if it's going to affect if it's going to affect your movies then it's personal exactly and and so something else to look at is you know aws a lot of times i, I they just don't quite have the reputation yet as something everyone is thinking about immediately with the enterprise right and up until netflix probably one of the biggest proponents or, or, or public customers w- was Reddit. Unfortunately, if you look around hard enough, some Reddit people left recently and on the way out kind of ranted and raved and, and ripped AWS a new one. But Netflix seems to be all in, and they definitely seem to be the new poster child for AWS going forward. They, they've done a lot of very positive blog posts about why they did it and lessons they've learned. And and I've put uh, links in the show notes. So if you want to read those blog entries of exactly what they did and how they did it, those will be in our show notes. But one of the biggest things that kind of jumped out at me was the fact that they basically started from scratch with yep. cloud. There was no migration. It was, you know, I put in the two biggest bullet points in there, four reasons. The first two reasons was one of them, they just flat out said we needed to re-architect and it allowed them to basically start over from scratch. Do you start over from scratch or do you keep building out your existing data center? They decided to, they decided to start from scratch. Yep. And... The other one was was focus. As big and huge and fast-growing of a company as Netflix is, they just didn't want to deal with all the crap, right? right? And that's kind of one of the big things of public cloud. It's like, hey, you deal with it. I don't want to deal with it. And I thought those were interesting. 
Yeah, no, I, I think you know, I think you're going to see people who their their big deciding factor is going to be good enough, right? And and that's you know, if you're greenfield and good enough is acceptable for what you want to do, and you've got to do it. Like I always argue, like that it's it's not so much about cost because there are a million little sort of unknown costs in there, but I think it's more about speed. So it'll be yep. interesting to see you know how many people look to do this broader and. You know, another interesting thing with AWS that came up this week, actually came up today, they announced something they're calling, you know, dedicated AWS compute instances. So in essence, the equivalent or, or I guess the, the, not the equivalent, but the actual, you get your own server, right? You're not sharing a server with somebody else. You're not uh, having to deal with the legalities or the security or the CPU overruns of, of sharing a machine with another VM or a whole bunch of other VMs. You can actually pay to get dedicated servers. And so this is sort of an interesting thing. This is another thing that's got people up in arms going, you know, what does this mean? Does this mean that they're responding really well to the enterprise because the enterprise is demanding this? Is this their sort of concession to say, gosh, we're, we're tired of hearing people say that we're unsecure or we're not compliant or we can't be audited? You know, the interesting thing to me with, with, with AWS is always that they kind of operate a little bit like, like Apple in that they basically say, look, we're, you know, we're going to listen to what goes on in the communities and, and certain things we're going to listen to more heavily or other things we're not. And they just, they don't have a roadmap. They just come out with stuff. And it'll be interesting to see if this takes off, if this is part of a broader plan to go after the enterprise. I know they're going after that heavily, but uh, it's interesting to see people that want to bash one architecture versus another architecture. And, and what tends to happen, and this happens inevitably in every single technology, is they all sort of come back towards the middle over time, right? You get yep, back to, exactly. you know, the things all become sort of hybrids, right? They're going to be a little bit of things that made them great, a little bit of things that are concessions to your customers, a little bit of the things that you've got to do to be competitive, whether it's technology competitive or psychology competitive or whatever. You know, and it, another interesting sort of thing, and, and the cool thing about Amazon is they, they always release everything at, at midnight when nobody's paying attention, and then first thing in the morning you see this massive of stream of comments and uh, and <laughs> politics and religion right, going both right. ways. So, well, okay, where I picked up on it really this morning was off of Beaker's blog. Beaker did a really good post on not just AWS, but a little bit about what this means and, and breakdowns of all of the different types of clouds. It's definitely worth a look. And probably one of the biggest things that I came out of all of this is uh, agree with you. Of is this a concession? Right? Is this the public cloud getting less scary and almost adapting itself or bending slightly to an enterprise customer class. And what are, what are the enterprise customers looking for? Are you doing it because of isolation and security? Are you looking for more predictable performance? Because where the sharing of the, the resources or the dedication of the resources, um, you share, you still share the network and the SAN in right. AWS, yep. but you dedicate the memory and the CPU. Yep. So depending on what you're looking for, you may or may not still be a good fit for AWS. Right, absolutely. So, you know, it brings up another topic that's been going on, which is, you know, for getting beyond AWS. There's other people offering services out there. And there's been a couple of, of articles written recently that's, that are sort of questioning where Microsoft's going. Obviously, Microsoft being the other, you know, another really, really big dominant player, lots of customer installed base. So people are starting to wonder, you know, is, is Microsoft basically saying we didn't do well enough with Hyper-V, so we're sort of skipping it. We're sort of skipping server virtualization. We want people to move towards app virtualization, right? Sort of skipping the, the, the hypervisor layer. And, and so they, you know, they announced some products around app V you hear them talking in some of the conferences lately about trying to move towards this. What do you, what are you hearing? It's gotta be a really interesting environment inside of Microsoft today because you've got so much of the business that's driven by on the box server licensing and application licensing and so forth. And then you've got Azure and some of the other things going on that are going to basically be, you know, renting. They're not getting dedicated license revenue. So what's your take? What are you hearing from people? What are you hearing out in the industry? The the biggest thing I would say is, first of all, I wouldn't say this is them admitting defeat with Hyper-V, but I certainly think they're going in a different direction because, you know, what we've always been saying for years with, with VMware and, and even ZenServer is, you know, what happens when the Microsoft giant wakes up and right. decides to just actually put a bunch of dollars behind Hyper-V and just decide to go crush the competition? Well, I, 
I see a lot of these articles. There's, let's see, one, two, three, four, probably five articles in the show notes. So they're definitely worth going and taking a look around the concepts of doing anything but Hyper-V, right? right. It's, one of them is AppV, which is, which is application virtualization, which is going to be comparable to uh, VMware ThinApp or, or, or ZenApp on the Citrix side. And also the, another one that they, they started to announce will be coming out very soon is called Microsoft Intune. And what Intune is, is desktop management in the cloud. And I kind of had to scratch my head for a little bit going, okay, now what the heck is that, right? And as far as I could tell, because I haven't dealt with the product, but as far as I can tell, what it appears to be is physical desktops, not VDI, but physical desktops, but with a centralized management console, but no like Windows Update servers on site or any of this other stuff. So it's like, Everything is in the cloud, and it's pushed down and managed, but it's managing physical desktops. And why would they do something like that? The only thing I could think of is, again, trying to make things easier and fighting off VDI as VDI becomes more prominent. Two things that, that, that kind of get me. So I understand, you know, I, at least I can, I can see their, their cloud strategy that's around Azure, right? So it's the idea that you, you want to basically lease licenses and you want to run them in the cloud, but you want to run Exchange, you want to run the same apps that you do today, Outlook and Exchange and SQL and SharePoint. And like, I can completely understand that. That's basically a CapEx for, for OpEx swap. For the most part, move everything to a browser. I get that part of their strategy. I get the part of their strategy where they're talking about like on-premise Azure or on-premise sort of pods, if you will. That to me, at least logically makes sense. It's sort of like the same of what you're used to, except somebody else kind of runs it. And then Hyper-V always seems to be kind of this add-in, thrown-on, at-the-end type of thing. So that, that one doesn't quite make sense. And then the other one you were talking about, the, this, this Intune thing, you know, it almost seems like, and we've seen this with VDI trials and things with people, is it's so hard to get the user experience right sometimes between the amount of network that you throw between the desktop and the servers, getting the storage side right, getting the performance right. Maybe what they're basically saying is that the the cost and the value is all in, you know, managing the hassle that they've created themselves, which is all the updates and all the patches and all the stuff. But A, either we don't want to cannibalize our business, which sells directly to to PCs, right, through Dell and Mm -hmm. HP and everybody else, or it's just a user experience they can't recreate in any way, shape, or form. And so they're saying, well, we'll just basically outsource the management of it. And maybe that's, maybe that's where they're going. But it's, it's, sure. it's, it's, it's a weird strategy to kind of wrap your head around because it feels like there's some things they do which sound pretty interesting, especially if you're a big window shop and you just want to move applications from a, one part of the balance sheet to another and you want to keep the experience the same. But then there's other things they do where you, you get the sense that maybe there's a lot of sort of internal fighting between the guys who sell licenses and the guys who now basically want to lease licenses and so forth. So that'll be interesting so, to see what happens with them. I, I just thought of this. Okay, I'm going to go ahead and make my first prediction ever on the All right, podcast. here we go. First prediction so, so on I'm the gonna, cloudcast. Write it I'm down. Stare, stare into my crystal ball here. At V, I think will actually, you know, it has the potential to take off because you think about it. Microsoft will probably be able to write or in some other way lock in their applications to AppV or tailor them in some way towards AppV. They have a distinct advantage if you're in a Microsoft world and you're trying to virtualize Microsoft applications, right? Absolutely. So I can see that one gaining some attention in the industry over time. The Microsoft Intune, uh, that's, that's the next Microsoft Bob. I think that thing's just going to die. Okay, so we've, we've got you. We've got you down for one app V, one share of app V, and one share of Bob. Okay, we got right. you. All right, all right. Just I, I just don't. You know, probably small shops might be interested, and in that kind of takes us into the last section of, of the news. Small shops might be interested in the in the Intune, but I don't think it'll ever take off the enterprise. And of course, I'll probably be horribly wrong. But hey, I said it. Well, you know, I mean, I think the I think the whole thing for small shops or SMBs is we we run on the side. You know, I mean, if you're an SMB, it's it's it, you know part of it's it's coming up with the capital for for equipment, but but so much of it is just having resources to be able to take care of all your technology. It's like if you can basically push it to somebody else, in a lot of cases that just makes sense, right? I mean, you can be 100% focused on your business. So it'll, it's interesting because you're, we're seeing more and more articles popping up where you know, you're know you hearing the, the various 
public providers, whether it's Microsoft or Google or whoever, going after SMB, that's kind of their entry point. And then, you know, you're starting to see, uh, there was a there was an article that came out this week about IBM, who lives and breathes making a ton of money around services. And, and obviously, complexity is the, the, the best friend of services because it, it allows long contracts. They're actually saying they want to simplify and templatize a lot of their professional services for that SMB mid-market space. So obviously that pace is, is becoming the most important thing for a lot of these guys is their way of, of differentiating and competing. Yeah, and, and I actually have a, a story about all of this as well. Um, all right. I, I worked for IBM Global Services from, it was my first job out of college from when I graduated in you know, about six years, I think I did in Global Services. They taught, you, they taught you how to wear a blue suit and drink your coffee black? <sighs> yeah, and lots of process and procedures that I you know, still stick with to this day, believe it or not. But what was interesting was when I left was right when VMware was starting to take off, probably around like VMware 2.1, 2.5, somewhere in there. And the account that we were on, we were wholly dedicated to one outsourced account. They were not interested in any way, shape, or form in virtualization, and neither was IBM. The reason why is because our contract, we were paid on a per-device um, ah, yeah. Why, why in the world would so, you want to? Why would you want to take right. one, one tenth so, of revenue? Yeah, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, you know, I've got a project. I'm gonna put in ten routers. It's you know ten routers. If I'm gonna put in ten servers, it's ten servers. And there was a fixed cost per device, and then there was a certain amount of people overhead that was charged per device, right? And so. It literally came down to, hey, this virtualization is really cool. Yeah, that's great. We're not getting rid of the servers, yep. you know. <laughs> yep, 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 yep. And yeah. and that's you know this is of course late nineties ish in that kind of time frame, right? But now look at where they've gone. They they have come around, and IBM is first and foremost a services company and probably a software company secondary, and there's now starting to lead a lot of their accounts with migration services, this whole taking you to the cloud. And, you know, it doesn't really matter, Mr. Customer, how I'm doing it or what I'm doing it. You know, just just fit in this little model here and, and we guarantee you that you will be able to migrate faster and quicker and cheaper. And honestly, for IBM, that's a pretty smart move for them because that really fits in with what the company has turned into in the last 10 years. Yep, yep. They're all about sort of managing change. And, and you know, the thing the thing I tell people every time I, I speak at, at, at industry events or I, I talk to customers, I talk to people, it's like, you know, we can talk technology all day long, but cloud is all about change. And whether it's change because you're going to buy from somebody differently, you're going to consume it differently, you're going to organize your organization internally differently, it's all about change. And the guys, I think, who are best at, at helping you navigate the change, navigate the journey, whatever the heck you're calling it, those are the guys who are going to be your best friends. And, and most likely, those are going to be the guys that are going to be winning business and winning awards. And, and I think that's probably as good a, a transition and lead into our guest. You know, we're going we're gonna to talk to Steve here in just a second, but I think the, the role of the systems integrator, the role of the value-added reseller, which is what Steve's going to come talk to us about uh, from INX, that's changing as fast as anything. And it'll be interesting to hear from him what he thinks their role is going to continue to be, how he you know, he sees them working with vendors going forward. So it should be an interesting talk for the next next half an hour or so. Anything else, man? That was uh, that was a lot of news for this week. We're gonna. I know, we're, I know. That was, we we promise it won't be quite that news heavy. But it was actually it was a good news week this week. It was a good news week. So, all right. Well, good. Well, listen. Uh, that's the news. We'll wrap it up with that. Let's uh, let's jump into the uh, the interview section of this. And uh, this one should be good. Steve Kaplan's always a, a fantastic discussion. And and like you mentioned, those guys are winning awards. So uh, he obviously is doing something right. Okay, everybody, uh, welcome to our latest episode. Today's guest is a, a friend of the show and a friend of both Aaron and I. We've got Steve Kaplan, Vice President of Data Center and Virtualization Practice at INX. Steve, good morning. How are you today? Good, thanks. Good morning. Good. Thanks for being on. Really appreciate it. Steve, first and foremost, we need to give you guys a, a huge congratulations to INX and, and to yourself. You guys are, are winning more awards these days than uh, than the guys from um, from King from King's Speech. I mean, you won awards at VM Partner Exchange here in the spring. You won awards at Cisco Partner Summit. Uh, you won a huge award from CRN recently. Business is obviously going well, and you guys are, are connecting with customers? Absolutely. Thank you. Okay. Well, good. 
listen, you know, one of the things I know a lot of people like to follow you both on your blog and on Twitter and so forth. What are you up to these days? I know you're, you, you write books, you're speaking. You know, what's, uh, what's on your plate these days? Well, besides all the, the normal uh, activities of work, uh, yeah, doing a fair amount of speaking. Just got back from Interface Portland yesterday and heading back up to the Northwest uh, later this month for a couple of roundtables and a CIO Summit and then down to L.A. for a, a roundtable. Been to Orlando a lot, three times, I think, in the last three weeks. Oh, wow. For CR- yeah, for the CRN event, for Partner Exchange, for uh, HIMSS. Yep. Uh, we're doing, yeah, I'm getting more and more involved in healthcare lately. In fact, just finished writing a white paper on, on VDI and healthcare that should be published shortly. Okay. Good. Yeah, I definitely want to talk about VDI and, and your experience there. You were working last time we talked offline. You were writing a book. You were working on a on like a V Cloud book. Is that out yet? Is that still in the works? We're doing the I, I believe the final edits now. In fact, I that's on my plate for this weekend. But it's a cloud computing with VMware V Cloud Director, which I had the uh, great privilege to write with uh, John Aristid, who's uh, at VCDX number one. Oh wow! Uh, on um, on Twitter, along with. Uh, four other senior VMware consultants. So okay. it was uh, a yeah, great experience. Being a non-engineer myself, it was uh, challenging at times because it is a very sophisticated, complex product and, and technology. It took me you know, probably about six times of reading the book word for word to really get to the point where I feel like I, I, I pretty much understand it and can convey it to, to other non-techies. But uh, it's been a great experience. Okay, good. And and are you guys shooting for getting that out at VMworld, or what's the what's the timeline for that for people who want it's, to go read it? Should be next week, and it'll be available on both Amazon and on Sage. Okay, good. So uh, late March, early April. Uh, very yeah. good. So uh, you know, Steve, I want to get into a couple of things. Um, you know, your your background uh, is is very, has always been sort of interesting to me. You've very deep business background, but you've 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 always sort of been involved with the tech world. You've you've written a, a ton of books on different subjects. A lot of them around Citrix and virtual desktops and terminal emulation and those sort of things. How did you, you know, how did you sort of get into taking your business background and, and applying it to technology, and then and then how do you find having visibility and knowledge and being able to talk the language in both worlds? How do you find that that helps your business? Is that something that that sort of differentiates you from from other people in the industry? You know, I think maybe a little bit. I'm, I've always been kind of the guy. The guy who's had trouble just opening a car door. You know, no natural engineering background at all, although it does run in, in my family, my, my father, my brother, my daughter now, but but I never had it, but then I, as, as I went, in fact, I remember when it was a land desk seminar at Intel years and years ago, all of a sudden, I actually started getting interested in the technology itself, and just gradually over time, got more and more immersed. It's kind of a, a funny story, I was early to, early in my days of, of selling VMware, my company was called AccessFlow at the time, it was before INX acquired it, and I went on a sales call for a for a company that, that, that the VMware rep, Sandy, had recommended. And, and after the call, uh, Sandy called the customer, Mike, and, and asked him how it went. He said, oh, it went great. I really like this virtualization stuff. We're going to virtualize everything. And she said, oh, great, and you'll be using AccessFlow to do it, right? And, and he goes, well, no, I, I really don't think I will be using them. And, and she, goes, she said, well, why not? They're one of our, our best up-and-coming VMware partners. And he said, well, I really don't have the confidence in Steve Kaplan to implement our environment. And... Uh, <laughs> Sandy laughed, and she called me, and, and I laughed, and so I called Mike, and I said, Mike, if you, uh, if you uh, engage with us, I promise you I'll never go anywhere near your server. <laughs> so you could talk about it, but they don't want you to touch it, which I, I think it makes sense. Do you, how, how deep do you find that you kind of have to understand the technology, or are you mostly sort of talking in, in conceptual things to CIOs, to CTOs? How deep do they want to talk, or are they really just saying, Here's my business problem, right? I don't care about your technology. Talk to me about my business. You figure out the underlying bits and bytes and and, and nerd knobs and so forth. Yeah, I, I absolutely, you know, think you're right on, and and it's it's conceptual. You have to under, certainly understand enough technology on, on how it drives the business, but it's business issues. In fact, yesterday up at Interface Portland, one of the rare times, uh, somebody in the audience, you know, a very techie person, asked a question that that I couldn't answer, but. Then I just turned it over to one of our engineers who's sure. also in the audience. But but generally, questions are, are more business related or technical or licensed or, or not not technical, but a, but a conceptual technical something that that I'm okay with. So as you're as you're talking to you're talking to CIOs, you're talking to your customers. You know the, the tech world these days is is getting 
you know, it's, it's moving real fast. It always tends to move really fast, but it's it's moving in ways that are that are getting pretty complicated, right? Customers now have a lot of lot of options of you know who they buy from. You've got vendors who are you know acquiring different kinds of technologies, so so they're becoming more and more one stop shops than than they were in the past. But you've also got outsourced offerings. You've got cloud computing, public offerings out there. How are you seeing your customers, or what are they, you know, like how are you guys helping them go through these transitions, right? Looking at where to get services from, how to deploy it themselves differently. What's the, what are the trends you're seeing there? Just taking a step back on on the solution integrator market. I think years ago when I got into into the business, many years ago, it, it was more about uh, resellers back then. Yep. And and it was a product sale, speeds and feeds, a lot of the leading. Resellers were, were people who were just very good at moving boxes. Yep. Over over time, that's in fact probably around the time I started getting into the business, the, the VAR started really becoming prominent value added reseller, and then the, the the VAR was valued for the additional value sure. <laughs> product. You know, the services make, making this technology actually work. Not only just selling the boxes, but setting up the boxes. Uh, then it went into yeah, solutions provider slash, in, or maybe integrator would be a better word, integrator slash solutions provider, who really, now you know, the, back then we had to sell not just boxes, but we had to actually sell solutions in, in, in order to show our customers the, the, the business value, the, the purpose behind getting the technology, and then selling the whole technology as an entire solution. And, and today, we're, I think it's kind of evolving, uh, although... We may have never had a word in the industry that's been as used as much as cloud. I, I think the next phase is kind of this cloud integrator where our role with our customers, and we're already seeing this happening right now, is, is to work with them not only to understand the business drivers and the objectives to implementing technology and not only solutions, but where the solutions should reside and how they should be aggregated and, and interfaced and automated within the organization. and where should an organization invest in a private cloud? Where should they invest in software as a service, a platform as a service, IT as a service? Which different hosting providers make sense for them to go with? What about SLAs? What about security? What about aggregating it all together and managing it all and moving uh, workloads back and forth? So our role, I think, is kind of evolving into this cloud integrator type of position where we work with our customers to help them understand, work with them to, to help determine what works optimally for their organization and then to implement this type of of aggregation interface to everything and you know i know one of the things that that came out of uh you know i heard heard quite a bit from a number of people at, at like vm partner exchange you know there's a number of people who are kind of saying the the kind of the crossing point or the the touch points between service providers whether they're you know sort of the well-known names or whether they're regional and and some of the systems integrators like like an INX, you know, people were starting to say, look, we're going to see more and more of those partnerships. We're going to see, you know, we're going to see them kind of kind of getting together because you've got, in some cases, scale from a service provider from being able to deliver certain kinds of services, and you've got customer interaction, customer knowledge, customer intimacy from uh, from the systems integrators. Are you guys seeing that more and more? Is that something that that as an integrator you're you're thinking about? You know, are there people that we better partner with to give you scale or technology or is that is that still sort of in the nascent uh, stages no i think it's a very real concern right now i and it's changing you know at i guess it's called everything channel the crn event in, in orlando for instance uh, at lunch one day at the table that i was sitting with there was a big concern among the partners at the table about microsoft's entry into the cloud services business and, sure. and how that's going to affect you know, Microsoft partners when Microsoft is selling directly to customers. Right. And right. and that's, you know, not just a single out Microsoft. We're going to see that more and more in the industry where large manufacturers using cloud are going to, you know, bypass the entire channel and make make the services available directly to end customers. And that's going to put a, put a strain on some of the relationships. It's going to force <clears throat> valuation of relationships. It's going to force reevaluation of the way that, Solutions providers go to business, and, and hence the term cloud integrator, and still inserting that value, but now inserting that value around cloud. But a, but absolutely, determining the partners is critical, and there's just so many options out there now yep. uh, of different manufacturers. Right. 
you know, every day. I'm not even in really a decision-making responsibility in that regard, but I get calls every single day from from people wanting to partner with us. Right, right. People trying to change the value chain. And do you do you find, or, you know, do you hear from your customers that they're are they interested in in sort of going, you know, more direct to 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 your to your vendors and so forth? So you know, whether it's Microsoft or you know, HP just announced that they're going to get into the business of, of, of doing clouds and so forth, or it's somebody else. Or do, do you find them still saying, "Look, uh, the value to us is around open and flexible and being able to to sort of go best of breed"? Or do you get a sense yet of of where their mind is or how they're they're looking at this? You know, I, I think in our case, we, we've kind of already evolved into more of the consultant role. Okay. And, and so we're not out just taking orders from our customers. We're, we're there more to help provide guidance and work with them at a strategic level and then assist them with the implementation. Okay. So, you know, if, if it makes sense for them to go directly from an organization, we're gonna re- from a manufacturer, we're going to recommend that. Uh, we're more concerned with their business issues, their challenges, what their objectives are, their regulatory concerns, their recovery issues, and and then helping them architect the best solution or combination of solutions for their organization. Okay. So your, your, your role sort of evolves to becoming helping them build the right portfolio, whether it's a a hybrid of uh, vendor direct on-site off-site it's, it's about being, you know, sort of similar to what you see with, with financial planners looking at, you know, here's a lot of different options, Mr. Customer, you know, here's where we might guide you and, and where those services come from could be a whole slew of things. Yeah, I think that's a pretty good analogy, although it's probably, you know, a hundred times more complex. Sure. Absolutely. And And the other issue is that today, most organizations are still struggling with just basic virtualization. Yep. You know, there, there's the whole uh, VM stall phenomenon, the, the word coined by Andy Mann of Computer Associates several months ago, where organizations get 20, 30 percent, maybe, you know, maybe 50 percent virtualized, and then they just, they just stop. And, and Andy has some reasons he thinks are behind it. I, I certainly have my theories. But there's no denying that organizations get stuck in this partially virtualized environment, which in some ways is the is the worst place to be because now they have two worlds to manage. They have the entire physical world with all its inefficiencies and high expenses and and power requirements and upgrades and everything else. And then on top of it, they have these tertiary environment of virtual machines and the the hypervisors and the host and the V adapters and the V switches. And so it's very complex, you know, it's, it's complex and involved in its own and it has its own management processes and console and tools. And so these organizations are having to do everything and, it, and it's complex and they have trouble, many organizations have trouble pushing through this. And they really need to push through that barrier, not only to, to reap all the, the great economic benefits of a fully virtualized environment, which are, are huge, and probably made even more so by the fact they've already invested in a partial virtual infrastructure most, although that infrastructure itself may not be adequate and probably isn't adequate for extending to an enterprise virtualization platform, their staff in many times at least certainly have the basics and, and are probably somewhat expert in managing the virtual infrastructure. And, and, and the IT staff is the most expensive component by far of any IT organization. So really, these organizations are at the point where they have the building blocks in place. All they need now is to leverage it and expand it to the entire organization. Yet, yet they get stuck. They can't get the money they need to expand their virtual infrastructures. They, they don't have the processes in place. They're, they're looking at their entire environment from a physical filter yet still instead of, instead of approaching it from a virtualization perspective. So, so they get stuck and the IT staff is overworked and they don't have the money. And, and really a lot of our role now is to help our clients get through this barrier, this virtualization <coughs> stall barrier, this VM stall barrier. And once they move into pervasive virtualization, they adopt a virtualization outlook. Now we can start looking at the next phase, which is automation, uh, moving to IT as a service, moving to private cloud, look, looking even at, at federation to other clouds. Like you mentioned, you've you've written about this, you've talked about this quite a bit, and I know, for example, when I when I talk to customers, a lot of times. You know, we'll we'll talk to, to to technologists, and they'll kind of go, "We're we're talking about change here. We're talking about some things going on, 
and and folks tend to think okay that's a that's a discussion you're having with the CIO right you're basically having a business discussion with them you're saying this is where you could go right this is this is where you can take your business this is where you can take your technology and and how to align those things and then and then you tend to sort of have techie level discussions it's about virtualization it's about how the network changes and so forth do you find some of that VM stall comes because the the CIO is sort of driving a new vision? The technologists sometimes get get caught in this idea of creating little green patches to to kind of get things started. They can prove that it works differently, and then it gets stuck in the middle. Or what do you, you know, what's the, you know, sometimes we hear we hear VM stall being because they they start running into you know the the mission critical applications. It's well. You know the the database guys won't let us virtualize Oracle, or you know somebody won't let us virtualize some application because they they got to have their hardware. What's the? Are, are you finding there's there's certain kind of profiles of that that are driving VM stall, or or maybe more importantly, what's you know what do you guys without giving up all your sort of secret sauce? Like what's the push through to go? Okay, we we got to find that. Is it is it always about just budget, or is it about process and and organizational change as well? Yeah, well, there's several questions there. You know, I, I, <laughs> Sorry about that. I think on a macro level, I kind of blame VMware, although that's a little bit tongue-in-cheek because IT is certainly never known as being proactive. It's driven by, you know, projects are driven by departmental-level budgets and, and projects, and, and that's what purchases IT infrastructure. And, and, and most IT departments are a hodgepodge of equipment and technologies and processes. But, but VMware didn't help, you know. Back when I started... Get, when I got into the into the virtualization business in 2005, early 2005, the, the VMware mantra was, you know, let's get an eval copy of ESX into the hands of techies. Get them to download it. It's such cool technology. They'll love it. They'll evangelize it. It'll spread throughout the organization. And and that strategy worked brilliantly. You know, VMware's dominates the virtualization market with 85% market share. It's almost a $3 billion company. But what happened was techies would download the, the product but then it would get deployed in pockets throughout the organization. So it get deployed very tactically. And then as VMware matured as a company and as our messaging matured around taking a strategic approach to enterprise virtualization, do the financial analysis up front, understand why you want to virtualize, the organization's customers still had this mindset of a piecemeal approach to virtualization. So they would put it in at a tactical level. And the disadvantages to doing it at a tactical level, besides the economic ones I mentioned earlier, are that these tactical deployments typically just don't scale. They were designed without the enterprise architecture requirements, without the processes, the manageability, the collaboration considerations, the compute network storage architectures, all these things that you need to be successful at an enterprise level. So like you said, you know, the, an organization scrapes together the money to put in this virtualization pilot for a specific point solution. It's working great. And then somebody in IT said, wow, this is great. Let's virtualize this tier one app, or whatever it happens to be, or this mission critical app. And, and because the system wasn't designed for the enterprise, because they're, they're still backing up at the application lever layer instead of the virtualization layer, that they don't have the right monitoring tools in place and the management tools, or, or they're not allowing for things like the I.O. bottlenecks that tend to come as you virtualize your tier one applications. All these, these issues, even the collaboration issues between the, the server and network and storage team, and and the collaboration or the interdependencies that virtualization forces, because all these things are left out, they have a bad experience with the virtualization of this tier one app. And so then years later, especially as the technologies mature today, where where now you can virtualize essentially any workload and have it run as fast or faster than the physical equivalent, and all the the tools are in place. But business unit owners have long memories and. And they say, oh, I remember sure. two and a half years ago when you virtualized my SAP, when you virtualized my exchange or whatever, and it was horrible. You're not touching my application. So you're right. You know, the, they, they, the, become the, they become sort of their own worst enemy trying to, to, to make change because you know, timing was wrong or it was, it was unorganized or something like that. Yeah, I think Andy again used the term uh, tree hug, uh, server huggers. Server huggers, yep. And, and so on top of everything else and all the other challenges, now you have you know, these business unit owners, you have these political challenges that you have to go through as well. And in the meantime, like I mentioned, the money's just not there. So the IT staff likes, we, we, had, this, we had a customer like this in, in, in Texas, and they, were, they are a healthcare organization. They had about 40 servers virtualized running on, on six VMware ESX hosts 
and about 350 physical servers still unvirtualized. And the IT team loved the, the, the virtual machines. They thought it was great. Very visionary CIO, very, very sharp. I mean, truly visionary. Right. Right. But, but, the, but they could not get the money they needed to expand their virtual infrastructure. They could get bits and drabs for maybe a little bit more memory here or some more licensing there or some more storage. But essentially, it was everything they could do to maintain it. In the meantime, these 350 servers were there was causing them to be out of space. They were running out of power. They were running a backup generator for seven thousand dollars a month. Uh, the hot, you know, summer months were approaching. They'd already lost one air conditioner. They're worried about losing more. Now, I mean, the IT staff was was worried about their their jobs. Yet they were stuck. What do they do? How do they expand? How, how do they move to a pervasive virtualized environment when they're stuck in this? This hybrid mode. Let, let's let's transition a little bit. So we, we could we could probably talk about VM stall and the you know how you get through it, and that's obviously your specialty. But let's let's talk about something that that I know you've got a ton of background on that kind of ties together in this. You know, another area of VDI, virtual desktops, and sort of the evolution of the desktop. You've had a, a very long background in this from terminal services and the things that you could do with, with, with Metaframe and, and ZenApp and things around Citrix. So you've sort of been through this whole evolution of how people delivered desktops, delivered uh, sort of uh, end-user experiences. You know, VDI is obviously a, a huge piece of where people are moving their virtual data centers to. That it's a service that's, that can be delivered to it. Where's you know where do you see that going? You've you've sort of been through all of that. I know you've you're sort of a big fan of where VMware is going with some of this stuff. But where do you see virtual desktops going, or or sort of the the next generation of people getting a, a desktop experience? To, to collaborate on what you said, I or validate what you just said. I've, I've been working with Citrix since the OS two version, WinView, wow. in nineteen ninety four, and was very when Frame came out in in nineteen ninety five. One of our our pre-sales engineers. Uh, I ran a company at the time that, that ultimately ended up being named the Citrix Partner of the Year for the U.S. when I sold it. But one of our techies said, "Wow, this." He was reading about it, and he, he said that this WinFrame looks looks really good. In fact, I think it's going to work so fast that that our customers won't even need to have servers in their remote offices. And the light bulb just went on for me, and I said, "Oh, wow, that's going to be huge savings." And and so from very early on, we were. Excited! I was excited about this concept of hosting desktop centrally. Of course, back in those days, it was called thin client and, and later server-based computing and, and a very, very different technology than, than VDI. But the concept, remarkably similar in the sense that the desktops are hosted on a central bank of, of servers and users are you know, using a protocol to see those desktops, to access those desktops. And that's the way that we've sold... Citrix MetaFrame and presentation server, et cetera, through the years, is we we didn't sell it as application delivery or as access or the other messaging that Citrix used throughout the years. We we always sold it as as a desktop replacement, and and we were quite successful at that. And it was, but there were some challenges in at least at that time at really getting it to to work well for as an enterprise deployment, and and bigger challenges I think in getting IT organizations to understand the concept. What's, what's happened today is that organizations are so familiar with virtualization and most organizations have had good experiences in virtualizing their servers is that they're a lot more open now to the concept of virtualizing the desktop. And, and they don't no longer have to have experts in registry hacks and you know terminal services printing and so on. You know, they, they manage it with the same Windows tools that they're accustomed to and it's the same interface that users are accustomed to. So it's, I think that's really the, the reason for its popularity. I've been, because I've been deeply involved in the economics since you know, 1995, I've been thinking for every year that it's going to be the year of, of hosted centralized desktops. And, and I've been wrong most of, every year. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> you're, you're, you're not alone in that, uh, you know, this is the year of proclamation. So, so, yeah. do, so, so do, you, do you find that, that, that customers, the, the ones that, that are successful in deploying it is, it, is it, is it driven because they really just have a, a very core, you know, desktop management problem? Or is it, you know, if they, if they get a, a successful sort of uh, server virtualization rollout first, they're, they're more skill equipped to, to take on VDI? Or is there, is there certain kind of, Profiles, because a lot of times, I mean, you hear over and over again that that VDI sometimes tends to get stuck in proof of concepts for you know 
perpetuity. Do you, do you find certain customer profiles, you know, workload profiles, or just skill set profiles are, are driving the successful ones more than others? And Andy says that the computer associate says that VM stall typically somewhere between twenty and thirty percent. I think left unprepared that that desktop VM stall is likely to be around two percent because it's way more complex and way more challenging than server virtualization. And the organizations I think that are most successful are the ones that approach it strategically. That they they look at desktop virtualization from a big picture perspective. They look at it as a component of an overall pervasive virtualization strategy, potentially even at some point of a private cloud strategy, and they go into it prepared for not only all the technical issues that they're going to encounter by rolling this out on an enterprise level, but on the social issues and the cultural issues. I like to tell a story of sometime in the mid-90s, in our early Citrix days, we were doing a project for a school district in San Jose. It was a small school district, and and the, the, the first uh, implementation, as, as always, was supposed to be a pilot, uh, but the uh, superintendent showed up when our techies were there and kind of bullied them into, virtuali- into virtualizing, into thin clienting the whole classroom. Uh, we replaced 30, they had 30 PCs and replaced 25 of them with wise wind terms. But again, back in those days especially, uh, there were applications that were incompatible with terminal services and Citrix, so we had to keep five computers to run those applications. Uh, one of which was the teachers. And these were the oldest, cheapest, clunkiest IBM clones you've ever seen. It was amazing they even ran. And the teachers, you know, so during this pilot slash production where tempers were, were already kind of getting a little bit hot maybe and expectations, you know, you know, they were having to run a production environment without getting all the bugs worked out. And the teacher had one of these PCs. And during this production pilot, uh, her keyboard broke. And she was very fond of the keyboard for whatever reason. And it wasn't really... So amazing that it broke. Was amazing. What was amazing is that the PCs ran at all. But we took another keyboard and we plugged it into her unit, and the new one ran fine. And then just to show her that her keyboard was broken, we took her keyboard and plugged it into another unit and showed her that the keyboard was indeed broken. But she went around to all the other teachers and said, "Don't let them put Citrix in your classroom. It breaks keyboards." It breaks keyboards. And yeah. uh, killed the killed the project. And, and But drove home to me very early on, you know, the importance of user perception. User perception is reality. So organizations that, that go into the VDI space without understanding the user perceptions, I think, are doomed to failure. I was at a very, very large co- company uh, a couple months ago, one of, our, you know, one of our customers, but not really more on the, on the Cisco side, not so much on the, the virtualization side. But we were, they had a VDI project in place, but, you know, the IT staff was getting prepared for a bunch of Absence, which is a great product, by the way. Absence is a wonderful product. But, sure. but the IT staff hadn't selected it, hadn't done anything about it. The business unit guys saw it and ordered it all. And from just that incident, I know that this project is doomed to failure because IT department, you know, they're doing it so tactically and so disjointedly. Trying to make all this work is going to be extremely difficult. You know, the users are going to what do you do when a user says, my Excel is running slower than it used to? Right. Yeah. Unless, you, <laughs> unless yeah. you have a baseline to show them, no, it's not. It's actually running faster than it used to. You know, you're going to be in trouble. Right. Yeah, no, that, and that, that keyboard example is a, is, a, is a really good sort of story. The thing I tell people all the time is, you know, VDI is, you almost have to think about a VDI plan, a VDI installation is sort of like three parts. So it's almost like if you've ever watched, you know, one of the cooking shows and you tend to see them, they do, they do preparation, then they do the actual, they do the actual sort of cooking and then they do all the presentation stuff. And I'm like, folks, if you don't understand that there's, you know, with VDI, there is the, there's the piece where you've got to do planning and, and business justification and, and help them understand, you know, where the costs are, where the costs may be equal, may may save money. You've got to, you know, sort of solve things for the, for the, for the, for the business guys. Then you've got to be able to tackle that proof of concept, you know, full bore. And that's really, like you said, it's, it's, you know, working through the IT skills that might be different, but, but more importantly, understanding that if you screw up that first user experience and you told them, we're going to make something a little bit different for you and the user experience isn't right, you're dead. And then there's the whole, you know, actually rolling it out. And I, and I think people don't quite understand that you've got to nail you know, every one of those areas. And, and, and like you said, you can have one user 
that, that had a bad experience, uh, and that bad experience may be because you designed the network wrong, because you had a bad keyboard, because you didn't have uh, the right type of storage. But yeah, I think you know, I think you highlight that really well. It's got to be looked at as a as a as a broad thing, and but you've got to realize that there's certain key points that you just got to nail. Otherwise, you're going to have yeah two percent effectiveness, which is which is unfortunate because you know you guys have you know we, as we mentioned earlier in the short, you guys have, have won awards both you know in VDI in in healthcare in particular around wireless for mobile devices. You know there, there's a lot of benefit for for customers whether they're in you know healthcare, they're in schools, you know whatever the industry is, and it's and it's getting them to push past that uh those those barriers that you know one person or one you know one business leader might shoot down the whole thing yeah vdi offers phenomenal opportunities like our location-based virtual desktop for healthcare uh, using wireless cisco wireless to triangulate where where users are and then pull up patient information right from the rfid scans i mean vdi offers the potential to to take desktop computing to a whole new level to be far more efficient, far more productive for organizations, save a lot of money, but there's a lot of underlying architecture that's that's difficult to put in well, um, and and I think your baking analogy that analogy is, is perfect, um, and, and and now the whole arena is getting even more, I don't want to say more complex, it's it's more exciting because of the whole convergence led by Cisco of of unified communications and desktop. So now we're able to go to customers and say, here's your device that's not only your virtual desktop, it's your phone, it's your video, it's your uh, web collaboration interface, ultimately it's your telepresence device, all running as a virtual machine on the UCS and the data center. So it's, it's a really exciting times. Yeah, it's, it's exciting times, and it's probably you know going to get even more interesting now that you've got you know you've got new iPads, you've got people coming out with different tablets, you've got people wanting to bring their own. So I mean, I think it, it keeps coming back to this idea that you've got to be planning for an architecture because you don't know what the endpoint's going to be, and and if you get it right, uh, it it tends to be one of those technologies that people go, wow, you know, like we talked about early on, if I can do things differently. You know, now I've got new opportunities, new business opportunities, new, uh, you know, skill set opportunities. So yeah, I, I, I think it's it's a it's a very exciting time. It's a it's another time when, like you said, you've got to be helping the customer see the vision, see where things could go, uh, and the technology just falls underneath it. So yeah, like you said, as long as you remember the bakery baking uh, or, or chef analogy, the pre- doesn't matter how good the food is if it's slopped on the plate, it's not going to go over well. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Presented. Well, Steve, with that, I'm going to I'm going to kind of wrap it up. I really appreciate the time. Uh, where can people find you, you know, online if they want to, you know, read the things that you're working on, keep up with with uh, with all the knowledge that you like to share with the community? Where can people find you online? Well, Twitter, uh, it's at ROI Dude. My my personal blog site is uh, by the bell, as in saved by the bell. I guess those are the two best places. Okay. My email, my email is uh, steve.kaplan at inxi.com. Very good. Steve, I, I really appreciate it. I know that uh, you do a ton in, in giving back to the virtualization and data center and, and, and community, and, and we really appreciate you being on. And, and uh, you know, hopefully the folks that listen to the podcast uh, learned a lot from it. And, uh, you know, uh, we, we appreciate you being on. Hopefully we can have you on again soon. Yeah, and uh, I thank you very much for the opportunity and, and all you do for the virtualization community. Good. Steve, and thank Aaron. you. Yep, and uh, Aaron's, Aaron's out today. He's, he's sick. He's dealing with, uh, with some back pains. We'll have him back on for uh, very, very soon. So thanks again, and uh, have a great weekend. All right, you too, Brian. Take thanks. care. Bye-bye. Okay, big thanks to Steve, and that's it for this week. You can follow us on Twitter at thecloudcastnet or reach us at thecloudcast.net where you'll find links to the show and show notes. You can leave us a comment or send us an email and details on how to stream us on Stitcher. Thanks for listening. Thanks, everybody.